let's give a hand to the band. Wow. That was amazing. Okay, that's enough. Enough applauding out there. Sheesh, man. Um, I'm really glad to be with you guys this morning. Wasn't that lost song powerful? I love those words. Even so, come. Would we be a church that's ready for you? Will we be a bride that's ready for you? Um, I consider that both for High Street. Wow, would we be a church that's ready for Jesus to be here with us now and to come back? And also, would this place be filled with people who aren't here yet, who also need to be ready for the Lord to come back? Wow. Well, welcome this morning. I'm so glad to be with you. Um, make sure you take a moment and say hello or some thoughts in the comments. I think Carrie, my wife, who did announcements, reminded you of that earlier, but I'd love for you just to say hello, let me know how you're doing, what you've been thinking about already in the service, and don't forget to thank our worship band. And also, welcome to those who don't normally attend here at High Street. We love that numbers of you have been watching our service, joining us online, even adding comments, and we'd love for you to be a part of our church or at least stay connected. We would love to welcome you into a connect group if you need that. Know that High Street is a home for you where we're following Jesus together. Well, like it was said earlier, we're in the middle of the Nourish series. It's really a mini-series that's going on um, two times per month, and we each session we're doing two cyclical biblical terms that help us, our souls be nourished as well as help us to nourish others. So last week, if you remember, if you watched, we did the theme restore, the biblical theme restore. And we, we learned that God is good and he made his creation good. And it's just so good. You know, in Santa Cruz, we are especially blessed with that. We see the oceans, we see the redwood trees, we have the mountains and the waters right next to each other. Um, and so we can see the goodness of creation. While at the same time, we learned that humanity rebelled. And because of that, there's a vast brokenness that entered the world. And it's only through relationship with Jesus that we can be restored to that, to that time where we walked with God in the garden, that our hearts and minds can be restored again, healed, and also the only way that we can offer restoration, true restoration to others. And this occurs through a lifelong partnership with Jesus. It was a great sermon. I was challenged as I taught it and thought about it that week. I got a lot of feedback from each of you about how refreshing it was to think of God restoring us, to bring us back to a place almost as if the fall had never happened. Not to deny the pain and the suffering of what we've gone through, but to see that God has this sweeping story of bringing us back into his arms. So as I've engaged with this, this idea of restoration this week and thought more about it, I'm sure you guys have had something similar to me. We can engage in restoration both personally and corporately to work out what the Bible says, what the Spirit is saying. And at times as we're doing that, it doesn't always go well, right? We face opposition sometimes to the things we're thinking or saying or living out. We can enter into points of disagreement with people. Uh, we have setbacks in our own walks with the Lord or in maybe in the church and how to walk that out. We find ourselves and other people living this out hypocritically sometimes, not authentically and full of the life of God. Um, we end up blaming others. Um, we end up blaming the world. We end up blaming ourselves. Uh, we can even just enter into over-busyness when we're trying to restore. 
And all along, we can experience feelings of failure that lead to kind of this underlying like shame or guilt for not knowing how to live out, how to restore in this relationship with the Lord. Things go through our mind like this. I don't know if you thought of this, but it's like, you know, I just should be better at this by now. Or um, this should be easier, you know, what Jesus did for me. Shouldn't this be a little bit easier? Um, or maybe, you know, after a while, you think restoration is just for everyone else, not for me. And there's this sort of uh, unconscious burden that starts to rise up into our consciousness. It's like the longer we work at restoration, the longer we press into it, it actually seems harder and seems further away. I think of C.S. Lewis where he talks about going further up and further in in the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's almost like we're going further out and further away. I mean, for how many of you has this journey towards Christ gotten easier over the years? For how many of you has this gotten easier? Well, I can imagine not many of you. And this can actually, over time, lead to deep discouragement in your walk with the Lord. And I was wondering this week, and praying through this, why would restoration become harder and harder as we go on. You think it would become more natural, but it becomes harder at times. And even in our current life, I mean, even now we're faced with COVID and shelter in place and riots and racism. We're facing, some of us, financial crisis. We're seeing political unrest. And on top of all that, we have our own personal struggles and temptations. You see, there's this tension between what we're seeing and experiencing in the world and the standards of Scripture and God's character and word that He's calling us to in restoration. And here's the point, and what we'll dive into today. Restoration is impossible without one crucial element— Yes, restoration must begin and continue with being revived. This is the life, the breath of God, His Holy Spirit coming in such a way, just like salvation, that it saturates our being, our thoughts, our hearts, our minds again, and gives new life, God's own life. It gives it to us, his children who are seeking restoration. And for us, this can become a personal revival. This is where a personal revival is where we're treasuring him, enjoying him, receiving his love and walking in that. And this can overflow, actually, into times where uh, it touches those around us, leading to even cultural and corporate transformation. So let's take a moment and as we anticipate this and think about what restoration has been and some of those frustrations, as well as anticipate what God promises in revival, what he promises to do in reviving us. Take a moment to pray and turn our hearts to the Lord. Would you do that with me? Lord Jesus, we know you've already been here this morning. You've been with us as we were, you know, quote unquote, getting ready for church, which is so much easier nowadays. You've been here as we've been singing and lifting up these words, these songs, this music, and our hearts are stirred again 
thinking of you, God, the one who came to us, the one who brings rest and strength to the weary. Lord, how our hearts, when we think about restoration, all that you want to do in us, get, both get excited and also we can get tired. We can get discouraged and we can get frustrated. And we need your help this morning. We're calling on your name, the name of Jesus who laid his life down, who was crushed for our sins, who was smitten for our transgressions, by whose wounds we are healed. We call on his name this morning and the Holy Spirit that he sent to bring life again to revive the parts of us that need that so badly, to revive the parts of us that make us think God's restoration is impossible. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you come, Father? Come, Jesus. Be in our homes. Sit next to us on the couch. Sip coffee with us while we're watching or out on a walk. Would you speak through the speaker's the technology and the headphones. We long for you, Jesus. We want our hearts and our minds to be reoriented around you, and we know this is not a work we can muster up. This is you. Would you come and have your way this morning? This is purposeless if we do not have your presence. Would you come? Come. And pray this in your name. Amen. Well, there's a poem by Lawrence Tribble, It was written during the first Great Awakening in America, just before the American Revolution. This is the late 1700s. He wrote this as he watched the waves of revival flow through America. One man awake awakens another. The second awakens his next door brother. Three awake can rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. The many awake can cause such a fuss, it finally awakens the rest of us. One man up with dawn in his eyes, surely then multiplies. One man. You know, as I'm reading this poem, I've thought multiple times, who is that one man? And what is the dawn in his eyes? that multiplies. And what about that brings the multiplication that we've been thinking about and praying about as we've looked at the Sowing Seeds series, as we anticipate the series on plants in the fall when we're thinking about harvesting and growth and fruit. What multiplies? What does that? Well, somewhere in the midst of the picture of restoration we talked about last week, there is a need for a personal experience of God that we call being revived. As I was studying this, I looked at Isaiah 57, 15. Carrie read this passage earlier. I'm going to read it again. It talks about the word revive. I want you to pay attention to who does this. For thus says the Lord, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the lowly. And what? To revive the heart of the contrite. You notice that God, the one who is high and holy, he's perfect and set apart. He's infinite and transcendent beyond anything our minds can think of. The one who, when we consider him, doesn't make us think more, but draws our hearts to worship and adoration and life. This is the God who is full of glory and power and love. And that God, who else does he dwell with in this passage? That's right. He dwells with the contrite and the lowly. And for what purpose? Did you notice that? Yes, to revive. Makes me think of that passage or that poem having dawn in his eyes. Let's explore this a little more together. This revive and contrite theme. Revive um, in Hebrew in this passage is the word hayah, which I think is awesome. Karate, hayah, revive. But it's hayah, C-H-A-Y-A, not like an English word. Or that's not even English. What is that? Mandarin, I don't know, hayah, something. Um, And hayah means to live, to remain alive, to sustain, restore life. So like in a physical body, this means to like quickly, suddenly, even violently be thrust from the threshold of death into life. You've seen these in movies when someone's about to die, you see them choking or whatever, and suddenly they're like, and you see them gaining their breath again. And this is a similar picture of a spiritual reality that Isaiah's talking about. It's where we're on the edge of death, separated from God. It's that Romans passage, while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's this idea of us suddenly being ripped into new life when we were dying. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, like the poem, O sleeper, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we see in this passage a prerequisite of restoration is to be revived. You cannot be restored until you are revived. And I think this translates, we all have an experience, if you're in the church, you call yourself a Christian, of being revived at salvation. But there are other seasons of being revived. So let's press into that a little bit more. As we think about revived, there was one other word that stuck out to me, and that's the word contrite. It's said twice in this Isaiah 57 passage. Contrite is the word in Hebrew, daha, which means like dust, powder, like grind to find powder. And it's that picture of being cast down, ashamed, that you're in your lowest place, that your life has been so smashed down that life has taken the life out of you, that life itself has made you almost lifeless, just like dust. And as I was thinking about it, I wondered where else in Scripture do we see the word dust being used at the beginning? Does anything jump to mind for you? Genesis 2-7 says this, 
the Lord God formed man from what? Dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and became a living creature. So here's what I want you to do. At home, touch, touch your nose, put your hand on it. I want you to repeat after me. This was where God breathed his breath of life. Isn't that cool? Right there. You know, breath is intimate. I don't know what it was like for God to draw close to Adam to breathe that breath, but if he got anywhere close to his nose, they were face to face. The cool thing, too, is that if we were dust, if Adam was dust, Adam was chosen before he had anything to offer God. God breathed on Adam for no reason other than just to breathe life into him. And when God breathes, what happens? Adam takes a breath, right? Life fills him. And so I considered in that passage in Genesis, there's two mentions also of the word life. And so I'm like, whoa, there's something going on here. So I look up the word life. Life is the word hi, like hi. Now you can say life when you see people. Hi. It means living, active, flowing, alive. You know, and we're, we're tying together these, this re- revived theme with contrite and now alive. What does it mean to be alive? In that the root of life, of that word high in Hebrew, is the word revive. Isn't that cool that hayah, revive, is the root of life? And that word, that word life is used so many times in Genesis 1 and 2. It's used seven times in chapter 1 four times in chapter 2, and one of those references is to the tree of life, the eternal life that God would have given Adam and Eve at that point if they hadn't have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is literally flooding his world with life, and he does that personally and specifically to Adam and to Eve. So why is this significant? Well, because every reference and experience of revive in Scripture and in our walks with the Lord is really a reigniting, a renewed receiving of God's original breath. That's what revive looks like. God breathed into Adam, and now spiritually he breathes into us. I want you to pause for a moment. Breathe with me. Yeah, that's like what God does in our life. So what does this breath, this original breath that God does to Adam, have to do with the word contrite? Well, contrite, like we talked about, means crushed. It means dust. Not physically, right, but spiritually. So it's like when our circumstances, our relationships, our mental state, our life just seems ground to its worth place, ashamed, lifeless, crushed under the weight of an unrestored world and an unrestored self. 
So it's right there, I wonder, in that crushed place, in the place of our dustiness, where is the high and holy one? Where is the God who breathes life? Well, Isaiah 57 says, he dwells with me. Do I need to clean myself up? Nope. Do I need to do more for him? No. What is God, the high and holy one, doing there? He's there to breathe life again. That same breath of life. That same intimate breath that he that made Adam. You know, for me, Carrie and I have had some hard times these last five, six years. And there's been a refrain that I've gone back to from the song that has just been powerful to me. It goes like this. When I thought I lost me, you knew where I left me. You reintroduced me to your love. You picked up all my pieces and you put me back together. You are the defender of my heart. Have you gone through a season where everything that just needed restoration seemed impossible to restore? When your heart seemed to give up its own life? What was that like? Where was God in that time? Did he seem like the one who was high and holy and far away? Did he seem like the one who was dwelling with you? You know, some of us get stuck here in this place of being crushed, in this place of contriteness without being revived. We bootstrap it. We try and make it on our own. Well, I'll just build my own life, God, if you're not going to help me out. Or we go it alone. Well, I'll just try all these Christian practices, make them happen, but not have that revived life within me as I walk. Or we can just sit numb in the pews. I've done that on Sundays too. The point is that God is there. And his heart is he's dwelling with you to revive. To revive those crushed, ashamed, dust-covered parts of your life. And your step one is to just receive. That's it. Say, God, I'm open. Help. You know, dust, dirt, can't clean itself up. It's just dirt, right? We have no breath on our own. Even the word human actually goes back to the root of from the ground, earth. It's the same root as the word humble or lowly. This is just who we are. We're dust without the breath of God. Well, this, as we talk about it, is actually the place of personal revival. I think about that verse, one man up with dawn in his eyes and the line awaken. 
You know, in Israel's history, they had times of revival. They were people who God said he would bless, and then they would turn away from him, right? They would experience oppression, struggle, sin. And then they would cry out again, God, save us, help us, bring us back to your law, bring us back to your temple. Would you restore us to your presence? And God would. He would send a judge. He would send a king, and they would live again under his rule for a time. Even while Israel was exiled, the prophets prophesied of this coming restoration. We talked about that last week, this picture of God rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the the Israelites' home. And even as they said that, they would slip into these pictures of revival. They would talk about God giving Israelites a new heart, taking a heart of stone that didn't obey and listen to the Lord and giving them a heart of flesh that beat with the life of God and promise of a new covenant where the Holy Spirit would be inside of those who believed in him. Yet even these Israelites, when they were restored, when they rebuilt the temple, those who had known the old city and the old temple wept. They wept. This is a time they had a celebration and the older generation cried because it was so much less than what they had wanted. They had so much less than what they had dreamed. It was different than what they had expected. And it wasn't like it used to be. Yet even here, God pointed them to this full revival coming in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit brought by this Messiah who would suffer and die, a revival for each person. So what is personal revival? Personal revival is when we so experience that love of God, that breath of His Spirit, that it reignites our personality. It reignites our walk and our relationship with the Lord inside and out. And it reignites our world with life. You know, Personal revival is not specific acts. It's not specific manifestations. You can't point to it and be like, these are the 10 things that need to happen in order for revival to occur externally. It's an internal shift in your heart. It's an internal shift that God provides. Jesus says this, and it's so similar to shelter in place. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut your door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, I wonder if that reward is revival. Your being set on fire again by the life of God. When I was a senior in high school, I had been hungering for a shift. For at least two years, I had heard of people doing consistent quiet times. I, you know, quiet times, times with the Lord, you know, spending time reading the Bible. I, I struggled to do it. You know, I struggled to be alone with Jesus. And I, I was really aware of my spiritual failures. Man, I was struggling with some specific things in high school. And even in that, I also felt this rift growing between who I was when I was around my friends and who 
I believed God to be and who he commanded me to be. And there is this ache growing in my heart. And I've been praying on and off for two years, God, something needs to change. I, I want more of you. I want more of this relationship. And my senior year, spring break, I went as a, a leader to our Mexico trip where we built houses down in Mexico. And it was an amazing trip. And I loved being there. I loved growing. It was really good. But something shifted on the way home. And there wasn't a specific, like, oh, shining moment. But I got home and things about my relationship with God changed. Scripture came alive. I started to read through the New Testament for the first time. And all these passages I knew before started to connect. I understood that forgiveness connected to maintaining relationship with God. You know, there's so many, I mean, I could go all through these different things God was teaching me. I also experienced conviction as I saw who Jesus was and the way he treated people. I would journal out my thoughts after these scriptures stood out to me in times of confession and prayer. And then that blossomed into a growing prayer life. So I didn't have a car at that point, and I would just ask people, I would pray, God, can you help me get a ride home? And God, every time I asked, would give me a ride home. And some days I didn't ask intentionally, and I would walk the couple miles home with the Lord just to kind of spend some time thinking, talking to him. I would stop by a creek or in a hill and journal and think about who God was. This was my first real experience of God's continual presence. This blossomed into significant conversations with others. And this hungering, not just for more of who God is, but also for God to have more of me. And this lasted for three months, three, maybe four. God breathed his Holy Spirit on me. You know, and as we, as I, and as we, as we live out the consequences of that sort of experience, that revival in our lives, that's what restoration is, right? That's, that's what rebuilding is. But it comes from that place where we're allowing the life of God to touch those dusty, crushed hard places in our hearts. And this made me think of a significant biblical character. Peter, who Danny talked about, I don't know, a month or so ago, Peter had a restoration experience with Jesus. He was restored relationally. Peter had, uh, had not just doubted, but um, denied Christ three times and disowned his like relationship with him when Christ went to the cross. And in John 21, Jesus comes to him and personally restores him into relationship. He asks him three times, just like the three denials, do you love me? And in the end, Peter was restored into connected relationship with Jesus. But Peter's personal revival was still coming. Peter was aching for more restoration. We see this in Acts 1.8 when uh, Jesus, when the disciples are saying, God, or Jesus, when are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? When are you bringing restoration? And Jesus says, wait. Hang out in the upper room. Wait. Wait for the Spirit of God to come. Wait for the breath of God to come. As we see them waiting in Acts 1.8, it 
Let's read this passage together. Not in unity, but I'll read it and you guys can follow along in your Bibles. Actually, sorry, not Acts 1-8. Acts 2, verses 1-8. through It says this, Disciples are waiting, they're longing for restoration. Jesus says, wait. And it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? Let's read verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. This is the Peter who, when he wanted restoration, Jesus said, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. And he begins to testify of all that God had planned from the beginning to bring Jesus to die on a cross, to come back to life in order for the Holy Spirit to be given to each one of us. Peter ends this in Acts verse 36 saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that's Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the breath of God, revived. You see, Peter and the disciples were flooded. They were overflowing, so much so that the crowds come. They were wondering, what is this sound? What is this fire? And it's, they're saying it's God's breath. It's this Holy Spirit who will come when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. And it, the text says that the people were cut to the heart. J. Edwin Orr, a theologian and church historian says this, Peter preached the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was the response? The hearers were pierced, stabbed, stung, smitten. These are synonyms of a rare verb which Homer used to signify being drummed to the earth, drummed to the earth. I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like crushed. That sounds like contrite. They became contrite, lowly, like dust, as they realized the love and power God displayed in order to revive them. 
There's something in them that the life that was apart from God came, was crushed down, and the life of the Holy Spirit, when they came to Jesus, was able to revive them. You know, Peter intimately understood Jesus' story. Jesus had been his friend and his Lord, and Peter had watched Jesus be crushed. Jesus had watched, uh, Peter had watched Jesus become contrite, lowly for their sins, for our sins. Isaiah 53 says, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. That word crushed is the same word, daha, contrite, made lowly. You see, Jesus went to the lowest place so that Peter, so that the disciples, so that all people could be filled and revived. You see, Jesus was the Father's response to our need for restoration. God the Father planned revival. And it makes me think, maybe Jesus was that one man with dawn in his eyes. One man up with dawn in his eyes. Surely then, multiplies. Have you experienced this sort of personal revival? The breath, the Holy Spirit of God coming intimately to your dust places and breathing life into you. You see, God wants to fill you so much that he sent Jesus to die. Will you be revived in those places that you need it? Will you live in personal revival? You know, personal revival leads to this thing called corporate revival. And this too is very similar. It's a shift in the whole church, a community, where personal revival causes this sort of ripple effect, where not just one person, but five people, ten people, a hundred people, a thousand people, and on and on are touched by the Holy Spirit of God when he breathes on them. I want to tell you a brief story about the Welsh revival in 1904. There's this man named Seth Joshua. A couple years before the revival was started, it was on his heart to pray for one man, like that poem says, one man up with dawn in his eyes. One man who God would use, a young man who would bring revival to Wales. In one of his own meetings, he didn't, was not aware this would happen, one of his own meetings, he was praying, God, break us. God, would you break us? And Evan Roberts, a young man who worked in the mines from 12 years old, came up on stage and with God on his knees and said, God, break me in agony. And this stood out to Seth Joshua. Um, I want to read a little bit about the response to this prayer meeting that Evan Roberts started. So it was shortly after Evan Roberts called the church, his church and then the churches in his areas to prayers for revival. Let me read what a, a news reporter said about nine nights into these prayer meetings. 
he visited, this is the year 1904, I believe, a week and a half into these prayer meetings, and he wrote this. A remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Lohar. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts, a native, has been causing great surprise at Moriah Chapel. This place has been besieged by dense crowds, unable to obtain admission. Such excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is situated has been lined with people from end to end. Roberts, who speaks in Welsh, opens his discourse by saying that he does not know what he is going to say, but that when he is in communion with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will speak, and he will simply be the medium of his wisdom. It sounds a little bit like Peter, doesn't it? The preacher soon after launches into a fervent and at times impassioned oration. His statements have the most stirring effects upon his listeners. Many who have disbelieved Christianity for years are returning to the fold of their younger days. One night, so great was the enthusiasm invoked by the young revivalist that after his sermon, which lasted two hours, the vast congregation remained praying and singing until 2.30 in the morning. Shopkeepers are closing early in order to get a place in the chapel, and tin and steel workers throng the place in working clothes. Three days later, another reporter said this, Instead of set order of proceedings, everything was left to the spontaneous impulse of the moment. At 4.25 a.m., the gathering dispersed. This is three nights later. But even at that hour, the people did not make their way home. When I left to walk back to Lalalini, I don't even know how to say it's Welsh, I left dozens of them about the road, still discussing what is now the chief subject of their lives. Seth Joshua journaled about this just about two weeks later. This has been one of the most remarkable days of my life. Even in the morning, a number were led to embrace the Savior. This is the man who had prayed for this. In the afternoon, the blessings fell on scores of young people. The crush was very great. The crush was very great to get in the, tap, the chapel. It's like dust, right? At 7 o'clock, the surging mass filled the Christian temple, and crowds were unable to gain entrance. The Holy Spirit was indeed among the people, Numbers confess Jesus, but it is impossible to count. There's the story a couple weeks later of an Englishman, a pastor, who read about what was going on in Wales and traveled up there. And he finds his Welshman, an old classmate, and says to this, his fellow Welshman, um, I've come a long way, and I would like to hear Evan Roberts preach. Where is he preaching? And he was taken aback when his Welsh friend professed ignorance of Evan Roberts' movements. The Welshman said he does not tell people where to expect him. He tells them that they need the Lord Jesus Christ and that they will find him in the nearest church. The Englishman must have looked disappointed. For his Welsh friend added, Look, I cannot promise that Evan Roberts will be in my church tonight but the Spirit of God will be there in mighty power. And he proceeded to amaze his London visitor by claiming that every church in town 
was filled each evening until midnight, and that lesser meetings went on all day from daybreak. This is the beginning of this next chapter of this guy who's recounting this, and it says, by the year, new year 1905, this is one year, less than one year later, it says the Welsh revival had reached its greatest power and extent. All classes, all ages, and every denomination shared in the general awakening. Totals of converts added to the churches were published in the local news papers. 70,000 in two months. 85,000 in five months. And in six months, more than 100,000 converts. During this season in, in Wales, judges stopped holding court because there were no trials, no one to convict. Bars completely shut down. Stolen goods were returned by the people who stole them. Debts were paid off. Children even held prayer meetings in barns and in hillsides on their own for other children. You see, there's something that happens when God breathes on a person one man. And there's something that happens when God breathes on a community with his Holy Spirit. One man summarized this this way in 1905. Who can give an account of the lasting blessings of the 1904 to 1905 revival? Is it possible to tabulate a sum total of family bliss, peace of conscience, brotherly love, and holy conversation? What of the debts that were paid and the enemies reconciled to one another? What of the drunkards who became sober and the prodigals who were restored? Is there a balance that can weigh the burdens of sin that were thrown at the foot of the cross? Is there a balance that can weigh the burdens of sin that were thrown at the foot of the cross. You see, Jesus Christ, our Savior, God himself was crushed, made contrite, that these dusty parts of us, the waste places, the lifeless places, could come and be breathed on again, be revived. One man awake awakens another. The second awakens his next-door brother. The three awake can rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. The many awake can cause such a fuss, it finally awakens the rest of us. One man up with dawn in his eyes surely then multiplies. You know, we're facing a lot right now as a culture, as a community. We're not even able to meet in church, right? And we're facing a lot personally. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you know. James Orr says this, Who knows that the tide is about to turn? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Meanwhile, one must tell one's children and one's children's children 
and generations yet to be born the wonderful works of God in modern times. There have been instances in the history of the church when the telling and retelling of the wonderful works of God have been used to rekindle the expectations of the faithful intercessors and prepare the way for another awakening. You see, revival and restoration go hand in hand. God's breath, His Holy Spirit, comes to our dust. This is what He wants to do. He dwells with us in contriteness to revive. This is an intimate expression of God's power and life inside of us where there's a shift and we become full of God, desiring Him, treasuring Him again. This is what we call personal revival. We can partner with God in living out these consequences, which is restoration acted out with Him. And this sort of effect, this personal revival, can multiply, can ripple into corporate revival and transformation that is sorely needed right now. So as we wrap up this topic of revival, I don't want it to end here on a Sunday morning. We're going to take some time and spend it in communion, and what I would like for you to do is turn your heart to the Lord. Allow communion to be a time where you can experience revival personally. I'm going to read a scripture, and as I read it, and Joe will play piano over it, I would like you to talk with God about those crushed and dusty areas. That your sin, your struggles, areas needy for restoration, you can be contrite with God during communion. Be comfortable just being dust. And then talk with God as we pray about personal revival, how you need Him to refocus on Him, to desire His reviving breath in your life. Ask for His Holy Spirit to lead you into personal revival. And make sure that you have the elements ready as we'll take communion after I read this. Lord, we'll make this scripture our prayer and we'll continue to pray as we spend time in communion. Jesus, you were despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men would hide their faces. You were despised, and we esteemed you not. But surely you have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You were pierced for our transgressions, and you were crushed, made contrite for our iniquities. Upon you was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by your wounds, Lord, Jesus, are we healed 
All we like street sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring multiplied. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You make sure you have your elements. Lord Jesus, we just remember that on the night you were betrayed and the grief and the sin and the sorrow that you took on for us. And we remember that when you were considering this weight of sin and suffering, of restoration that would be bought by you, that you took your own, your own body as a picture of, or the bread as a picture of your body and you broke it. Saying this is your body broken for us. And you took the cup and you said, this is the new covenant in your blood that would bring revival I'm adding that. And we each sipped it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to go to that place so that we might have the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, new life in those places where we need it most. Would you send your revival on each of us as we pray through our time with you in communion. We pray these things in your name.